welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette and Tom here today to bring you the latest media law headlines. We have a judgment from the Supreme Court in Fern and Tate, the privacy implications of a new TikTok trend, and the latest newscast prophecy fulfilled. But first, I want to talk about Nicola Bully, whose body was tragically found in the River Wire last Sunday after 23 days missing. During this time, there were various intrusions on her and her family from the press and the police, which I think warrants a little bit of discussion. If we start with the police, uh, the police investigation into the disappearance of Miss Bully has been criticised after they revealed her personal private information in a public statement made on the 15th of February 2023. Lancashire Police told the public that the 45-year-old had suffered with, and I quote, some significant issues with alcohol and ongoing struggles with the menopause. Zoe Billingham, the chairwoman of the NHS Mental Health Trust, who has previously worked in policing, told BBC News that people are asking rightly, how does the reproductive status of a woman who has gone missing relate to the bid to find her? And would it be the same information would it be that the same information would be put into the public domain if she was a man? The Information Commissioner's Office has also announced that they will be asking Lancashire Police to set out how they reach the decision to disclose this information. Tom, do you want to comment on, on the police's decision-making here and, and, and share your thoughts? Well, there are two aspects to this. There is the aspect that concerns our response to the police's decision at a moral level and the aspect that it concerns its legality. Um, Now, leaving aside the data protection implications, which is something the ICO will look into, and I do not know enough about the status of the information, the way the police acquired it, and so on and so forth, to be able to say anything meaningful. I wouldn't want to preempt the the ICO's inquiry into that. So leaving that aside and focusing purely on the common law, uh, that is, the law relating to the misuse of private information, The position in law that the police faced was really very, very simple. Um, If Nicola Bully had still been alive, there is no question they have misused her private information in that they have released into the public domain obviously private information, and it cannot have been proportionate to a legitimate aim because it has absolutely nothing to do with finding her. Um, her reproductive status and um, whatever issues she may or may not have had with alcohol have no bearing on where she's likely to be located after three weeks missing. So I can't see a connection there that makes it proportionate to release the information. However, since Nicola tragically had died, there is no claim for privacy at common law. Now, if the police had asked a lawyer for legal advice as to whether they could release this information, I do not know if the police did, but if they had, that is precisely what I would expect a lawyer to tell them. And since the police's working theory was that Nicola had fallen into the river, something the police had said publicly um, really not long after her initial disappearance, It's entirely possible that the police decided that there was very little likelihood of such a claim uh, being brought against them, and thus they were on safe legal ground releasing the information. 
Now, I think it's cynically, it seems possible that the police went through that decision-making process. I think it's unlikely. Um, this all seems to have been handled at a very local level. And I frankly doubt that police at such a local level uh, would have sought that particular legal advice and then made a decision particularly on it, especially since, as I say, there may also be data protection implications. Um, so it then seems to me to be more by luck than design that the police will avoid liability for misuse of private information there. The other aspect, the aspect where we respond morally to what the police did, has surely to cause us to ask the question, what on earth were they doing? Um, but that's a question that, um, as, as you rightly point out, Colette, has been asked, is going to be asked several times um, by members of the public, people who are concerned at the police's actions here. And I don't know if we will ever get a satisfactory answer on it, but it's not the legal question. Um, and so uh, whilst I would uh, agree with the broad sentiments of the question, what on earth were the police doing? Um, it's not something we need to, to labor on this podcast. The Bully family have also made a complaint to the broadcasting regulator Ofcom against ITV and Sky News for contacting them despite their appeal for privacy following the discovery of the body, which was later confirmed to be of Nicola Bully in a river in the River Wire on the 19th of February 2023. Miss Bully's family have criticised parts of the media and some members of the public for their, and I quote, absolutely appalling conduct since she disappeared while walking her dog on the River Wire on the 27th of January. In a statement issued after the police confirmed Miss Bully's death on Monday, the family explained how they, and I quote, tried to take in what we had been told on the Sunday, only to have Sky News and ITV making contact with us directly when we expressly asked for privacy. The family went on to say that the press had taken it upon themselves to run stories about us to sell papers and increase their own profiles calling it shameful that they had acted in this way before firmly requesting that the press leave them alone now. Tom, do you want to comment on uh, the likely outcome of any Ofcom complaint here? Um, I know we've spoken a lot about the kind of Ipso complaints, and as far as I know, the, there's been no complaints to Ipso, but is there a slightly different process that happens now that there are broadcasters involved? Well, Ofcom has considerably more teeth than Ipso. Um, and if Ofcom get involved and decide that uh, something untoward has happened here, they can enforce sanctions against the broadcasters concerned. Um, what exactly the process is that they will follow and what sanctions, if any, might follow uh, from that, uh, I, I'm not quite sure. It would depend on the particular facts of the case and their quite sensibly not going to make very much of that public beyond saying they've written to the uh, two broadcasters will be seeking their explanation as to what happened. Um, as for what happened itself, I think if we were to give the benefit of the doubt to the broadcasters, it is possible 
that what happened was that there was in essence a kind of misunderstanding um, that there had been an open line of communication between the family and the broadcasters for the purposes of um, keeping the story in the news at the point when the family wanted it to be still in the news, when they still had hope of recovering uh, Nicola alive. Um, and that when news broke that she had uh, uh, been found dead, um, that the broadcasters continued with that line of communication to ask whether the family wanted to make a further statement. Now, that's the kind of charitable reading of what happened. Even if you read it in that charitable fashion, though, one has to ask the question again, a bit like with the police earlier, what on earth were you doing? Um, it is surely obvious that in the hours immediately after the police announced that Nicola's body has been found, the family is going to be in a profound state of shock and grief. And it is surely, it does not take a large amount of empathy to realise that they are probably not going to be receptive to an approach from a media organisation at that point, even if they have, in recent days, enjoyed a productive and friendly relationship with that media body. Um, so what, what I really think has happened here, and I, I think the level of anger that is very evident in the statement the family has put out, a very understandable anger, given the circumstances, um, what's evident is there has been a profound failure of empathy here on the part of the broadcasters. Now, empathising with the people that you are reporting on is not a legal requirement. Um, it's not even a regulatory requirement. Um, but it is uh, something that requires uh, a little bit of imagination. Um, imagination of the sort that I would expect to be present in news organisations that regularly deal with tragic circumstances and which appears on the family's account to have been absent here, which is just very sad. Hmm. I'm going to move on uh, to the Supreme Court judgment handed down on the 1st of February 2023 in the case of Fern and others against the Board of Trustees of the Tate's Gallery. By a majority of three to two, the court has found that Tate liable in the tort of private nuisance to flat owners overlooked by the viewing gallery of Tate Modern. The claim has been remitted to the High Court for remedy. Speaking for the majority, Lord Leggett said it is not difficult to imagine how, um, how oppressive living in such circumstances would feel for any ordinary person, much like being on display in the zoo. All members of the court agreed that as a matter of principle, it is possible for a private nuisance to exist where residential property is subject to visual intrusion. The decision is a robust reassertion of the protection which the common law gives to pri the privacy of the home, with no need for an, any extension of the common law to accommodate the right of privacy guaranteed by Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. That last part is taken from the 5RB commentary. Uh, Tom, do you have any thoughts or comments that you want to make at this time in response to the judgment? Do I? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, we've been following this case for quite a while now on the podcast um, because we were following it when it uh, first appeared in the High Court and then when it went to the Court of Appeal. And now 
Uh, we've had it in the Supreme Court as well. I both love and hate this decision. Um, it's a a case with many strange different facets to it. It is a case where of the nine judges that considered the merits and the law in this case, six of them concluded that the claimants should lose, three of them concluded the claimants should win, and the claimants win. Because those three were all in the Supreme Court with the 3-2 majority. Um, so it, it's clearly divisive. Um, and it's, I think, divisive normatively, but it's also divisive in its reading of the relevant precedents because none of the courts approach the questions in the same way at all. Um, Broadly speaking, the rationale for the Supreme Court's judgment is that, contrary to what had been said in the High Court, it is possible for overlooking to constitute a nuisance. Indeed, Lord Leggett tells us that, in principle, anything that interferes with a property owner's quiet enjoyment of their property is capable of constituting a nuisance. Now, as a matter of formal law, I know we don't often talk about nuisance law in this podcast, it's not really something you often associate with the media, but it's, it's really quite an important thing when it comes to privacy rights um, for people in their homes. As a matter of formal law, private nuisance traditionally was a very robust, very claimant-friendly field of tort law. It did not take much for uh, a defendant's activity to constitute a nuisance. And the primary remedy was injunctive relief to prohibit the ongoing uh, carrying out of that nuisance. So even really quite worthwhile activities or profit-generating activities could be shut down if one single landowner was having their private life diminished by that activity going on. And one of the distinctive things historically about private nuisance is that it has been so robust that the rights of individuals in land, the interests of the land, in essence, that's what's being protected here, the the land's interest in maintaining its use and maintaining its value, are prioritised over the interests of even large numbers of other people who are carrying out activities that they enjoy. It's something that irked Lord Sumption when he was on the Supreme Court, and in the case of Coventry and Lawrence, who openly spoke about the need to instead perform a utilitarian calculus uh, and to find ways to permit worthwhile activities to continue. And his suggestion there was that uh, damages could be awarded more routinely for worthwhile activities rather than injunctive relief prohibiting them, so the defendant could, in essence, pay for the activity and continue with it. Um, What Lord Sumption was doing in Coventry and Lawrence, and this is where I start putting my legal philosopher's hat on, what, what Lord Sumption was doing was bringing this utilitarian calculus into 
his decision-making process. So he was stepping beyond merely applying formal law. He was not judging in a formalist fashion. That was perfectly obvious. He was stepping well outside of established practice in uh, private nuisance. So that brings us current to uh, Fern and Tate and Lord Leggett's judgment, in which he is highly critical of the lower courts for having not simply followed the doctrine. In other words, he criticizes them for not being sufficiently formalist. Um, and for instead, um, you know, he suggests that they would have, they were reluctant to prevent a large number of people, vis the visitors to the Tate, from carrying on an activity that they enjoyed and that this interfered with their decision making. In essence, what he's saying is, you can't take any of that into account, get back to the doctrine. And the doctrine leads us to a very clear answer. So he gives us the highly formalist judgment. Now, those who've listened to me rant about formalism over the last few years will know I'm no fan of formalism. Um, I think it's fascinating that uh, the how stringent, it's fascinating how stringent the criticism is um, of uh, non-formalist judging in the lower courts. And thus, Lord Leggett's judgment appears as a matter of legal principle to be on a collision course with Lord Sumption's earlier judgment in Coventry and Lawrence just under 10 years ago. However, they actually seem to end up in roughly the same place when it comes to the question of what's the appropriate thing to do with this. Because Lord Leggett agrees that in some circumstances, it may well be that uh, damages are more appropriate than injunctive relief so that uh, important, worthwhile activities can continue. Which then leads me to ask the question, well, why are we so irked about failure to follow formal law if you're going, if you actually are prepared in theory to take into account utilitarian, uh, a utilitarian calculus when coming to the decision? Of course, we don't have a decision on remedies um, because since the High Court uh, dismissed the claim initially, it never got as far as considering remedies. And the Supreme Court, rather than impose remedies itself, has remitted it back to the High Court for consideration of remedies. So this can all start again. We've certainly not heard the last of Fern and Tate. Um, in summary, then, what have we learned from the case? Well, we've learned that anything can, in principle, constitute a private nuisance. And that rather broadens the potential use of private nuisance. And the fact that this comes down from the Supreme Court is really very significant. I'm sure it'll be in all the tort law textbook updates over the summer. The private nuisance just got a rocket lit under it and is suddenly uh, back at the forefront of uh, uh, tort law uh, in terms of the uh, rapidity of its development. Um, as for the right approach to judging, well, we're seeing signs that this iteration of the Supreme Court is far more formalist than the iterations that immediately preceded it. Certainly, this court is nothing like the one that Lord Sumption was on just 10 years ago. That really should cause us to ask much bigger questions about legal certainty, about the direction of our courts, about just how politically significant the decisions of our courts are and the appointments to them, because there is absolutely no denying. It is there in black and white. You have Lord Leggett here openly saying, I'm doing things differently. If you just read slightly between the lines, it's there. And it's really very obvious that he's saying, 
I'm doing things differently. We're doing things differently. We're sticking to the doctrine far more than before. And that's going ultimately to mean that we're going to encounter, I suspect, in really quite short order, decisions that do contradict ones from really not that long ago. It's a fascinating case. Uh, but on a human note, uh, I'm quite glad that claimant won this case. Um, it has been painted in some quarters as a terrible victory for the rich people who own these rich flats over the little man who just wants to stand in the Tate and view some art and look out over the Thames. What I actually think it's going to do is um, benefit much less wealthy landowners because, let's face it, the people who are most likely to be subject to overlooking are the ordinary families who've just about scraped enough together to buy a house somewhere and then some massive developer comes along and builds a huge expensive tower block next door which overlooks their property um so i think those who are criticizing the decision as the wealthy shutting out the ordinary folk should stop for a moment and i did see a column i think it was in the guardian which made an argument along those lines and it was released i think the evening of the judgment and I thought then, hold on a moment, you haven't thought this through. Well, maybe the author did think it through, and I just disagree with him. But um, really, I think that this could ultimately benefit um, claimants standing up for themselves against the big developers who build properties that overlook them. Speaking of things that uh, might seem socially useful, but are actually a lot more nuanced, I want to talk about the new TikTok trend that sees women covertly leaving their phones on to record at the gym when and then re-watching them to see who's been staring at them while they do their squats and, and various other exercises. Uh, under the hashtag gym weirdos, videos show men attempting to flirt and pick up women who just want to get through their sets without being bothered. It's attracted uh, over 2 million followers. This, this hashtag has attracted over 2 million videos and followers on TikTok. And I think it's an interesting one to, to draw out the, the kind of privacy and defamatory implications of this. Because while some of these men might appear to be deserving of, of public scorn or humiliation, there's no doubt that they haven't really been given the opportunity to answer or, or provide maybe some context or some explanation that might not be captured in the video itself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a legal minefield. Um, I'm very sympathetic to um, women who face harassment, and it is predominantly women who face harassment on a daily basis, commuting, going to the gym, at work, on the street. Um, I'm a, I have the privilege of being a man and not suffering this. Um, but I've no doubt that that harassment is um, very real uh, and uh, in some cases really very harmful. So I have every sympathy when women who've had enough of it try to find ways to fight back. The problem here is that that strategy might well backfire on uh, a number of them where mistakes are made where identities are mistaken um, or where the actions of a man are misinterpreted. Um, it's entirely possible a person could be 
filmed looking like he's staring at somebody. Turns out to be blind. And then if that person is identified on social media and vilified, well, then you're looking at a libel suit. And that libel suit is going to cost a lot of money. Um, there are also broader privacy implications. Um, people working out at the gym have a right to privacy. If a woman starts filming herself and those around her, what if nobody around her is staring at her, but they are all being captured on camera? That has data protection implications, assuming this is digital recording. It has privacy implications. Um, because just going around capturing the world on camera is not necessarily the wisest thing to do in terms of privacy, least of all in spaces that are, whilst not intimate spaces, perhaps more intimate um, uh, than uh, other uh, public spaces. So I, I have sympathy with women wanting to find ways to strike back against harassment. Absolutely, I do. I think this approach opens up possibilities for serious legal problems. The last thing I want to mention in today's newscast is um, the former Tory whip, now backbencher Andrew Bridgen's threats to litigate against former Health Secretary Matt Hancock seems to be moving forward. This relates to Hancock's criticisms of Bridgen's apparent attempt to draw a comparison between the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and the Holocaust. In a tweet before the last newscast, Bridgen said that he would allow Matt three days to apologise publicly for calling me an anti-Semite and racist, or he will be contacted by my legal team. It appears that Bridgen has since confirmed that a pre-action letter has been sent to Hancock. A spokesperson for Hancock told the press that what Matt said was obviously not libelous and he stands by his comments. So um, we will obviously keep listeners updated as to whether this continues, but it does look like it is moving forward. Go get the popcorn, Colette. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for your wonderful insight as always, Tom. Uh, always a pleasure, Colette. Thanks very much. As ever, follow us on social media and we will be back in the weeks to come with more newscasts. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.